All right, so we are continuing our look at why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever, and uh, we're going to specifically continue our look at how the stage is being set geopolitically. But before we do that, a couple of memes that were sent uh, to me this uh, week. I love this one. It was really funny. It was uh, if selfies had been a thing back in the Old Testament times. So there's Moses uh, as he's uh, parting the Red Sea. There's a Miriam with uh, Moses uh, there at the, uh, uh, at the river there. And then there's uh, Moses and the burning bush. And I guess that's Daniel with his friends in the lion's den. So if selfies were a thing in the Old Testament, then this is kind of something you'd see on the old Johnny Carson or something, these funny headlines from the newspaper. But somebody sent this to me, and it gave me a chuckle. Uh, so here's one. World Bank says poor need money. Well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, or how about this one? Diana was still alive hours before she died. Or federal agents raid gun shop and find weapons. Oh, my. Uh, and then <laughs> planes are forced to land at airports. Well, I wonder where else they would land. But uh, anyway, all right. So uh, we've been talking about how the time is now, why Bible prophecy matters more than ever, because we're getting closer and closer. Everything is aligning to fulfill prophecy in Scripture. And uh, so we've talked about several ways in which the stage is being set. And last week, we shifted gears into the stage being set geopolitically, uh, geopolitics referring to ge geographic and political influences on the world as they're kind of intertwined. Um, and so we, we were talking about geopolitical signs of the times. Last week, we looked at the decline in America. And why is, does that matter geopolitically? Well, it matters because uh, we don't see a nation like the United States mentioned in Bible prophecy. In fact, no nation from this far west is mentioned in Bible prophecy. And to save people an email, I recognize that a lot of people have tried to identify end times Babylon with America. And indeed, there are some similarities, but my view is that literal Babylon will be rebuilt and that there will be a Babylonian beast system that encompasses not just geographic Babylon, but financial Babylon, and religious Babylon, which I believe will be Rome, the religious part. And if the United States is still around when the rapture happens and we see the Antichrist rise to power, uh, then, yeah, I, I think New York City could be part of the Babylonian beast system. Uh, but certainly the United States is not specifically marked out in Scripture the way, uh, you know, places like Russia Turkey and even nations from the east and Syria, uh, Egypt, and those types of nations are. Uh, so uh, Iran, for example, the, the Gog-Magog alliance. Uh, so, uh, but another reason that the, the, the decline in America that we talked about last week is so critical is that from the Luciferians' own writings and their own game plan, which they've sort of telegraphed for the last hundred plus years, they want to destroy America. They need America to be gone so they can rebuild it as part of the new world order. So both from their, you know, blueprint as well as from what we can tell in Scripture, uh, it, it's, I think, prophetically significant that America seems to be, uh, you know, slip-sliding away, as they say, right? Uh, so that was what we talked about last week. Uh, but tonight, another example, and I told you I've got several things that fall under this heading of geopolitical that we're going to kind of camp out on for a while. Um, Tonight I want to talk about 
the the emergence of Israel and the centrality of Israel in God's plan, and specifically then the rise in anti-Semitism. So let's start with just talking about the nation of Israel in God's plan of the ages. Now, those of you that are well-versed in dispensational theology, that you understand the Bible and its literal, grammatical, historical framework, uh, this is not going to be anything profound. But sadly, we live in a day and age when even a lot of Bible prophecy buffs and enthusiasts uh, have ignored the significance of Israel in God's plan of the ages. And, in fact, uh, really don't have a clear distinction between Israel and the church. And, and in fact, as I'm going to talk about a little bit later, uh, many people sort of assign to the Jews a major part in the grand conspiracy, as if the Jews are the tip of the spear, which is completely false, and, and I'll explain why. But to understand why a rise in anti-Semitism is prophetically significant, we have to start with Scripture and understand why Israel is significant in God's plan of the ages. So we know that God loves Israel. For example, in this psalm from the sons of Korah, uh, we read, O oh, clap your hands, all ye peoples, shout to the God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us. Why? The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Jacob, there's a metonym for Israel. Remember Jacob, uh, whose name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. Uh, so God loves Israel. Uh, another psalm from the sons of Korah. His foundation is on the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Uh, gates there is another figure of speech, apart for the whole, referring to all of Jerusalem, all of Israel. The Lord loves Israel. In fact, Zechariah, the 6th century B.C. prophet, reminds us that Israel is the apple of God's eye. And anybody who comes against Israel uh, is coming against the apple of God's eye. When did Israel start? Well, Israel was called out as a nation in Genesis chapter 12, 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, when God gave Abraham this unconditional promise that ultimately will involve all families on the earth being blessed through Israel. Now, that has not happened yet. Israel has ebbed and flowed in its place of prominence throughout world history, but because of Israel's disobedience and lack of faithfulness to Yahweh, to God, the one true God, Israel has never accomplished what God's purpose for her was, which is to be uh, the center of a one-world government where everyone is blessed by God, the creator of the universe, because of being under the umbrella of Israel. That hasn't happened yet, yet we have an unconditional promise here to Abraham that it will happen. If all we had was this verse, we ought to recognize that the children of Abraham, Israel, uh, have a future that will involve the fulfillment of this promise. This is what's often called the Abrahamic Covenant, and I've used this chart many times uh, over the years to kind of diagram out what we read in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. There are three aspects to the Abrahamic Covenant, three promises that are over time amplified and reiterated through three additional unconditional covenants. So if you look at the bottom of the screen there, you see kind of a rudimentary 
timetable of human history before the law, Israel and the law, the present church age, and one day the kingdom age. That's just a good big high-level overview of God's plan of the ages. The Abrahamic covenant was promised before the law ever came. Remember, the law came through Moses on Mount Sinai when the children of Israel had left Egypt and were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Abraham, of course, was uh, before that. Um, but as I mentioned, as time goes on, God reminded the children of Abraham of their unconditional promises that he had given through Father Abraham. Uh, first, through what we historically have called the Palestinian covenant. A lot of people take objection with that. It's just a geographic term. It has nothing to do with politics. Um, and, uh, and then the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. Uh, all of these amplify different aspects of the, the core elements of what God promised unconditionally to Abraham. I'll come back to that in a second. But eventually, uh, God, uh, Israel rejected the long-awaited king, crowned him with thorns, uh, and that gave rise to what we now call the Age of Grace, or the Church Age. And Paul makes it very clear in Romans 11.25, we'll come back to this verse in a moment, that for now, Israel has been struck with blindness. They're, they're, they're temporarily set aside. They didn't recognize the Messiah. They rejected him when he first came. And so God has refocused his attention on the church, which is Jew and Gentile in one body, a unique mystery, as it's uh, called in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, and so the, the law served its purpose as a guiding principle for the nation of Israel for a time, but now that Christ has come, as we read about in Galatians 3, the, the law has been set aside. So we're currently living in the church age, but what are we to do with these unconditional promises, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Did God just forget about them? Did he change his mind? Uh, what's to come of them? Well, they are going to be fulfilled someday in the kingdom. And so all three of these elements will find their fulfillment when Christ comes back the second time and takes the throne. And that includes land. You know, the the Palestinian or land covenant, as it's sometimes called, in, includes literal boundaries uh, for uh, the nation of Israel. And to this day, Israel has never occupied the land as was uh, promised them. I've talked about this many times. The blue outline there uh, describes the boundaries of the promised land as revealed in Genesis chapter 15. The red is modern-day Israel. And you think about all the the, the tension and turmoil and battles and wars uh, just since 1948 when Israel became a nation again over that little piece of real estate. And yet it's nothing compared to what Israel will occupy when Christ the Messiah comes back and takes the throne. And so the land aspect of the promise to Abraham has never uh, been uh, fulfilled. And uh, neither has the seed aspect, remember uh, the passage we looked at in Romans 12? Through you, uh, all the families in the earth uh, will be uh, blessed. That has not happened yet. And then, and, and by the way, the ultimate seed there that's talking about is Christ. And Paul talks about that in, in Galatians. And then ultimately, spiritual blessing, new covenant blessings, perfect righteousness, obedience, uh, you know, a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice 
justice, and that will happen uh, in the kingdom. So if you look at you know, my end times chart, everything over there to the far right in purple represents the coming kingdom, and that is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And there's a whole group of people in Christianity that have rejected that notion and thinks, think that Israel is insignificant. They play no part in the end times prophecy. The church, you and I, are the new Israel. It's called replacement theology. Uh, they don't understand uh, the book of Revelation the way we do. You know, we read the book of Revelation, and it's all about Israel. I mean, think about the number of references to Israel in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapters 6 to 18, or really 19, are all about the tribulation period, that time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah the prophet called it. And you have, for example, 144,000 Jewish witnesses going throughout the earth, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the two witnesses. You have the explicit persecution of Israel by the beast. Um, you have the beast himself who sets himself up as God, where? In the rebuilt temple in where? Jerusalem. Um, you've got uh, all of the enemies of Israel uh, coming up again. Uh, so, I mean, you can't, you can scarcely read the book of Revelation without thinking, you know, in a Jewish uh, context. And then, of course, in chapter 19, Christ comes back, the second coming, uh, to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom. The first 1,000 years of that are described in Revelation 20. Uh, the millennium. We did a podcast last week on, uh, it was called A Kingdom Like No Other, what life is going to be like in the millennium. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go back and check that out. And then at the end of the thousand years, we enter into the eternal state when the old heaven and old earth are destroyed and uh, God uh, recreates uh, the earth and heavens in sinless perfection. So that's a pretty simple book to outline. Everybody thinks Revelation is complicated. It's only complicated because Satan has convinced us it's complicated. Revelation is actually one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. Uh, the first three chapters are letters to three historical churches from Jesus in the late first century, uh, commending them and rebuking them for various things. Then chapters 4 and 5 are a, a, a transition to set the stage for the prophetic wrath of God that's about to be poured out on the earth. Chapters 6 to 18 are all about the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments of God's wrath. But, you know, he literarily has to set the stage for that. This is the climactic event leading up to the Battle of Armageddon and the coming of Christ. And so chapters 4 and 5 constitute a theodicy or a justification for what's about to happen, a justification for the wrath of God. The answer is the question, what gives God the right to pour out His wrath? Well, it's because, you know, who is worthy to open the seals of God's wrath? By the way, the seals are God's wrath. And that's why the whole seven-year period is the wrath of God, the prophetic wrath of God, which the church has promised we will not be here for. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9 make that very clear. So the seals are seals of God's wrath. And verse chapters 4 and 5 talk about who is worthy to open the seals. Well, the Lamb. The Lamb is worthy because He was slain. Um, and so, you know, then you go through... All of the uh, judgments there, the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. Scholars differ on where they put precisely these judgments. Everybody agrees that the first seal judgment begins at the beginning of the tribulation. 
That's the unveiling of the Antichrist, that rider on the white horse. Uh, and then some dispensationalists will put the, the remaining six seals, as well as all the trumpets and all the bowls, in the second half of the tribulation. I don't hold that view. Most, most dispensationalists put all six of the seals in the first half of uh, the tribulation. Uh, some even put some of the trumpets in the first half. I think the trumpets are in the second half. And then everybody agrees that the bowls are at the very end of the tribulation. This is not drawn to scale. Uh, so the bowls are really the final three, four days, two or three days, really 72 hours leading up to the Battle of Armageddon in preparation for Armageddon. And then after Christ comes back, you know, I, I like to remind people chapter 20 comes after chapter 19. I understand that in this world of new math, uh, people, that might not make sense, but that's generally the way it works. 19 and then 20, right? And so 19 is the second coming. 20 is the millennium, therefore pre-millennialism, right? Which is what we as dispensationalists believe. If Christ came back at the end of the millennium, then you'd have Revelation chapters 16, 17, 18, 20, 19, 21, 22, and it really wouldn't make any sense. Uh, but no, chapter 20 uh, follows chapter 19. By the way, um, those who don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom, how do they get around that problem? How do they get around the problem that chapter 20 follows chapter 19? Well, it's simple. They say the book of Revelation is not chronological. They, stay, they outline it uh, in sections, and you see the, the sections kind of charted out there on uh, the screen. The first three chapters are a section. The next three chapters are a section, or next four, I should say, so forth. You, you have these different sections. Each one constitutes a restatement of the church age. And so how do they interpret the book of Revelation? What's the meaning of each of these sections? Now, this is going to be really profound, so see if you can follow me on this. But they say the first three chapters are the church, the next are the church, the next is, you guessed it, the church, and each section is just a reiteration of the church age. It's called the recapitulation view of Revelation. So the seal judgments that are talked about there in chapter 6, that's the church age. We're experiencing those today. The, 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 the trumpet judgments, chapter 8, that's today. The bowl judgments, chapter 16, that's today. Guess what? The thousand years during which Satan is bound up and in prison, that's today, chapter 20. The whole book of Revelation is uh, allegorized, as it not sequential, as if it's talking about the church age over and over and over and over again. Uh, now compare that to my chart of Revelation. Quite a bit different, right? Uh, you have to really do some hermeneutical gymnastics to come up with a way to make chapter 20, where the kingdom is announced, not be following the second coming. And so, in their mind, this is all just restatements of the present church age. And yes, Christ comes back at the end of the church age, and that's depicted, in their view, in that section of chapters 17 to 19. At the end of chapter 19, he comes back. And then it all starts over again in chapter 20 with this thousand-year millennium. They don't take a thousand literally. All of the numbers in Revelation, by the way, are literal. Every one of them can be taken literally. 
There's literally 144,000 Jewish missionaries, literally two witnesses, literally seven seals, literally seven trumpets, literally seven bowls, literally a thousand years, but not according uh, to those who mishandle Scripture and allegorize uh, Scripture. So uh, the reason that Israel is central is because the Bible comes full circle back to this kingdom age promised all the way back in Genesis chapter uh, 12. That's the reason, as I pointed out many times, that the present age is called the last days. Because if you look at God's plan of the ages, the present age is indeed the last age before the consummation of the kingdom. Right? And so uh, it absolutely is critical to, to understand that Israel plays a central role. I understand that they were temporarily set aside, and Paul talks about that in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And I understand that essentially for 1,800 years there was no Israel on the map of world geography. But in 1948, Israel reemerged once again. And think about all that's happened in the, what, you know, 70-some-odd years since then. Israel is just all over the news. There have been battle after battle after battle because Israel is critical. By the way, all of these charts are available in the Not Bad Works chart book, which we just restocked out on the resource table. Uh, you can pick one up out there. And I also have most of the charts in my eschatology book, What Lies Ahead. Uh, and I think there's some of those out there as well. If you're watching online, you can go to notbyworks.org slash store and, uh, and, and check those out. But God has a plan for Israel. And even after the Babylonian captivity, which we're studying the return from captivity on Sunday mornings in our survey of the book of Nehemiah, uh, God wanted to remind Israel that he has not forsaken his promise, that it will happen. Notice what Jeremiah, uh, the post-exilic prophet, said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God hadn't forgotten about it. It's still in the future. I will, future tense, someday do what I promise to do. In those days and at the, that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. See, that's not happening right now, right? We long for it to happen. Our hearts cry out for justice, uh, but it's not happening right now. But in those days, according to the Lord's timetable, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord our righteousness, literally Yahweh Sidkenu, or sometimes you'll see it in English, Jehovah Sidkenu, a compound name of God. Or go back a couple of chapters in Jeremiah to chapter 31. I've mentioned this frequently. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. What does he say? Well, he says, quote, If these ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars, if they depart from before me, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, have those ordinances ceased to exist? No. You look out. Uh, tonight, if it's a clear sky, you'll see the moon and, and maybe the stars. Tomorrow morning, you'll see the sun. They're still just as strong as ever, right? Uh, not, you know, in spite of what the Luciferian globalists are trying to do to destroy 
the atmosphere and, and with all of their geoengineering. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out beneath, then I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. In other words, in spite of Israel's disobedience and rebellion, that God, it's a, this is a poetic way of God stating that my promises are sure. My unconditional covenants will come to pass. So, as you've heard me say before, every time you see the sun, and we saw today, driving back from Nebraska, 100 degrees, my dashboard said outside, driving right into the sun. Um, and instead of thinking about this verse, I was thinking about how my air conditioner and my wife's uh, compact car couldn't keep up, and I was hot, sweaty. Um, and my last shirt, so don't stand too near me after Bible study tonight. Um, but what I should have been thinking as that sun was glaring down was, ah, there's a reminder of the promise of God that he's not through with Israel. And he will bring them the kingdom just as he promised them. Uh, and I've mentioned this verse a couple of times already, but Romans chapter 11 Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, God and Daniel promised this. We're going to look at Daniel in a second. Uh, in his divine plan, included a time of Gentile domination of Israel. And in this present age, Jew and Gentile alike are being saved. That's why Paul says, that it's blindness in part. There are some Jews today who get saved, become part of the church, part of the family of God. It's not, it's not like every Jew has been blinded, but nationally the nation of Israel has been blinded. But then he goes on to say one day all Israel, not just the remnant, but all Israel will be saved, meaning delivered into the kingdom. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Now, why would Paul say that if he wasn't referring? By the way, he's quoting there from uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, why would Paul say this if there wasn't a future for national Israel? I mean, it's, it's, it's just uh, baffles me how people can read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans and not see the point that there is a future for national Israel. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob's wife, for this is my covenant with them. I've made a covenant with them. If you go back and read the new covenant details, remember that land, seed, and blessing, the, the blessing was reamplified in Jeremiah 31 with the new covenant blessings. That involves a time of uh, complete and total forgiveness and sinlessness in God's people on earth during the kingdom age. Uh, that's what he's talking to here. And if you have a good English translation, that's going to be in italics because it's or inset because it's quoting the Old Testament covenant promises to Israel. Uh, one of which is from Isaiah the prophet, uh, who said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is the same context as the famous uh, virgin birth prophecy in chapter 7. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Has that happened? Is Christ sitting on the Davidic throne today, ruling over an entire world with an endless kingdom in perfect judgment and justice? 
I think not. We saw last week the Sound of Freedom, Wendy and I, highly recommend it. I'm aware of you know some of the background and the different uh, people that were involved in funding and all that, but set all that aside, the point is it's exposing, as I've done for years in some of my books and conference lectures, uh, the deep, dark, sick underworld of child sex trafficking and satanic ritual abuse. And, uh, you, know, you, you know, you need to see it. But if Christ were on the throne right now and all of the governments were upon his uh, shoulders and, and he was ordering and establishing judgment and justice, that wouldn't be happening. And if Satan were bound, as our millennialists say he is, that wouldn't be happening. This is what happens when Satan is bound. I'd hate to see what it's like when he's not bound. Um, so, of course, this is yet future. Of course, there's a future for national Israel. Going back to Zechariah the prophet, again, that 6th century B.C. prophet, in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. What does he mean by Jerusalem? He means Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, our millennialists take these passages and just completely allegorize them and spiritualize them. And, oh, Jerusalem means, I don't know, Boston or something. I don't know what they think it means, but it doesn't mean historic Jerusalem because in their mind, Israel is no more prophetically significant than, you know, Zimbabwe or Canada or, you know, Chile. It's just another country, but not in God's word. God's word says Israel is the apple of his eye. And it's the holy land. It's my land. And someday the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God himself, is going to rule and reign in that holy land. Uh, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Go back to the promise to David. Uh, when Solomon was to build the temple and take the throne. Notice what God said. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. House, meaning temple. Kingdom, meaning geographic boundaries of rulership. Throne, meaning a literal throne on which the king sits. Those are all literal. David understood it literally. He would have had no other context. There's no way you can tell me that David heard that promise from God in the land of the ancient Near East where he had been sitting on a throne himself. He didn't have the temple, but he'd been sitting on a throne. He'd been ruling. Uh, and, he, and we're supposed to believe that when he heard that, he thought that God meant that the kingdom is going to be metaphorical in our hearts and there's going to be a figurative house and kingdom and throne in our hearts and that this is the kingdom. And we are all living in the kingdom today. I hope you're enjoying it. And that's what amillennialists and covenant theologians suggest that David would have understood there. That's not what God meant. David knew exactly what God meant. And it was literal. But notice that last word there, forever. See, Solomon didn't sit on the throne forever, did he? And there are a whole host of kings that came after him, some good and some bad. Um, but this promise has not been fulfilled. Daniel gives us some of the most striking evidence of a future kingdom on earth for Israel. Uh, for example, in the context of the statue that, Neb that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, in which Daniel had to recite the dream and the interpretation, we read, in the days of these kings, these you know other kings represented by the different parts of the statue, uh, meaning the you know the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, and so forth, the Romans. Uh, 
the Babylonians, of course. Uh, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. See, throughout human history, every kingdom that has risen to take over the world has fallen. How did it fall? Well, another people came in and were stronger and bigger and defeated them in war. Then they became the dominant world power of that time. And yet, you know, as we sit back and, and think of America as the, you know, so-called single superpower today, uh, we find it hard to believe that the kingdom of America could somehow be toppled. We don't know history if we think that. I mean, just it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the annals of human history and see time and again that powerful kingdoms have fallen, going all the way back to ancient times. And there's nothing that says that America won't fall. And in fact, as we talked about last week, there are many things that indicate we will fall if the Lord doesn't come back soon. Um, but the kingdom that God's going to set up in the end times is, is, is no, not going to be left for another people. It shall, in fact, break in pieces and consume all of the other kingdoms. And there it is again. It shall stand what? Forever. I don't see a forever kingdom ruling the world right now. Do you? So does that mean God was wrong? God changed his mind? No, it means that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And God, Daniel's God, who became, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar's God, remember Nebuchadnezzar got saved, uh, is going to rule the world through the person and work of his son and our Savior. Later on in Daniel, with Daniel's vision, I was in watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. We see this again and again in the New Testament, that Christ is given the kingdom by the Father, and he's going to come and establish that kingdom when he returns. Right now he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, the throne in waiting, but someday God's going to say, Go. Now, everything is not put under his feet now, the Bible says, but one day he will come back and everything will be under his feet. Uh, and this is a vision that Daniel has. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So again, have we seen that? No, we have not. So uh, the, the Bible is clear that Israel plays a central role in end times prophecy, that God has not forsaken his unconditional promises to Israel, and they will, in fact, come true precisely as the pages of Scripture tells us they, tell us they will. So as we think about geopolitical signs of the times, obviously we talked previously about Israel becoming a nation again in 1948, May 15th, 1948. And I've talked in another, in a different session from that about the rise in paranormal activity and UFO activity that kicked off essentially right around that time after World War II when talk of Israel began to filter out and everyone was talking about, you know, giving the Jews a homeland once again. Uh, and I believe Satan, who knows the Bible better than we do, uh, caught wind of that, 
And that's why he sent out his legion of demons and evil spirits to do reconnaissance missions and to start ratcheting up the battle in the unseen realm, uh, which has now been raising for over 70 years. Uh, Satan knows we're getting close. And he knows we're getting close because Israel is now a nation once again. And I believe that very strongly. I, I don't think, unless I die unexpectedly, I don't think I'll live out my days. I think I'll be raptured. Uh, and I think it could happen very soon. Uh, I just that's that's the, the, the my indication from everything I see and read and study. Uh, and certainly things are heating up. That's what my two volume set spirits of the Antichrist is all about is all of these different signs of the times from all different, you know, precincts reporting showing we're getting close. Uh, and so what I want to talk about tonight is another aspect of that. Uh, Jewish prominence in God's plan of the ages that I think signifies we're getting close, and that is the rise of anti-Semitism. You know, obviously, Satan hates God. We all agree on that, right? That's pretty clear. So Satan's going to hate anything that represents God. So I've talked before about how he hates humanity because mankind is made in the image of God. So when people see God's people, like when the serpent saw Adam and Eve prior to the fall, he saw the the representation, the image bearers, you know, of, of God. And once Adam and Eve fell, that image was tarnished, it was corrupted, and it can only be made right again through faith. And if you know the Lord by faith, you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then you've been reborn spiritually. And you now, once again, to the extent that we live out our new nature, are representing God's glory. Uh, you know, Paul says we are, uh, when we're walking uh, in, in the light, and when we're walking, Ephesians 5, and when we're walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, we are to shine like stars in this perverse generation. So that, that's, we are to represent God. So Satan hates humanity. Uh, but Satan, and he hates the church which is God's envoy right now in this present age. Uh, but he hates Israel, and he's hated Israel going all the way back, you know, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every step of the way, he tried to intervene and stop God's seed from developing and ultimately uh, into the ultimate seed of Abraham, as Paul describes in Galatians 3, which is Jesus Christ himself. Uh, so we saw, you know, the Egyptians... Uh, well, we could go back even before that. We saw, uh, you know, Joseph, the way he was mistreated by his brothers. We're going to talk about some bad characters within Israel in a moment. Um, but then we saw you know, Potiphar and Egypt, and, and we saw Assyria. We saw Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, the Romans. Uh, modern days, we've seen the Germans. But before that, we saw Stalin, the Nazis. Uh, Satan hates God's people. He knows that the Jews are going to represent the kingdom someday, that the, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, is going to take the throne in the temple, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and that he's going to rule the world. So if Satan can wipe the Jews off the face of the earth, he thinks he, he can win, just the way he thought he could win if he killed Jesus. 
tried killing Jesus multiple times. Remember when he was born, he tried to kill all the babies that were two years and younger. And of course, he indwelt Judas and betrayed Jesus and got Jesus, sent Jesus to the cross. All of this, of course, part of God's plan. But from Satan's perspective, thinking linearly, you know, this was him, his efforts to defeat God's plan. So Satan hates the Jews, and his followers hate the Jews. Um, that's why we have, you know, uh, groups like the, the neo-Nazis and the skinheads and the white power uh, groups. Um, now, what what's, gets a little bit complicated here uh, is there are people who, by and large, recognize and understand the grand conspiracy, that there is a global elite uh, a cabal, a deep state that's out there trying to take over the world. And to some extent, they might even understand the spiritual nature of it, that it's ultimately God versus Satan. But because they haven't been well taught in the scriptures, and they haven't you know, practiced a consistent hermeneutic, a, a Bible study method that leads them to clearly see the plain promises to Israel in the Old Testament, many of which we just went over, they have bought into one of Satan's lies that Israel is actually the leader of the conspiracy. And you have all these fake documents out there and fake lies and news. And these are good people. I've dealt with several of them. They really, they mean well. And by and large, we kind of, we, we connect and we can understand, yeah, there's a conspiracy and we hate the Luciferians and we hate the, you know, the, the elites and, and the, the, the global elites and that kind of thing. Uh, but they, they bought into the lie that Israel is responsible for it all, that they're the bad guys. And that is simply not true. So where it gets complicated is that even though that's not true, uh, there are, as there are in every nation, Jews who are bad apples, right? Just like in Washington, D.C., there's some Luciferians that are in high positions of power controlled by the enemy, out there advancing Satan's agenda to, to try to usher in the New World Order. No different in Israel today. Uh, and, you know, we've got lots of examples, by the way, of, of this throughout Israel's history. I was talking at dinner tonight with some folks about Ahab. You know, I mean, would you say Ahab was a good Jew? <laughs> Supportive Jew and advancing God's plan and good plan for the nation of Israel? Of course not. For example, 1 Kings 16.30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Right? In fact, uh, 1 Kings, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Ahab, Jezebel, Israel's history is full of unbelieving Jews who became enemies and cavorted with the enemy and were pawns in the game of the enemy. Just like throughout American history, we have God-fearing, Christian, patriotic people who've tried to advance the principles of a democratic republic. But we also have Luciferians and Freemasons and Illuminati and Satan worshipers who are out there working at the behest of Satan to destroy America and usher in a one-world system. So, you have to be nuanced in your understanding of all this. And sometimes I get in trouble, more than once I've gotten in trouble, 
because I'm one of the few uh, guys out there that is open and honest in our understanding of modern-day Israel, and I frequently point out that Israel is not in the land today in belief. 1948 was not the fulfillment of prophecy. 1948 was not the fulfillment of the regathering of Israel supernaturally into the land the way the Bible tells us is going to happen at the second coming. Jesus very clearly uh, tells us that in Matthew 24. Uh, that's when Israel is going to be regathered in the land, when the king comes. And all the Old Testament prophets talk about this great end times regathering, but it will be a supernatural regathering. What happened in 1948 was certainly prophetically significant. It was part of the stage setting because now we have a, a geographic Israel for which, uh, to which the Jews can return, right? So definitely should get our attention, and it's sort of setting the stage for what's to come. But Israel did not return to the land in belief. And, you know, Paul makes it very clear, so do to a host of other passages, but particularly in Romans 10, that they're not going to return to the land until they call on the name of the Lord to be delivered into the kingdom. Paul in Romans 10 quotes Joel 2, which is a second coming passage, Joel 2, 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, be saved. That's not an individual salvation, eternal salvation passage. It's frequently misquoted and applied that way. It shouldn't be. If you go back and read Joel chapter 2, it's talking about the return of Christ to save the nation into the kingdom, to deliver the nation into the kingdom. Paul quotes that verse verbatim in Romans 10, 13. It's Joel 2, 32. And so what he's saying is, yes, Israel is going to be delivered, but not until they call on the name of the Lord. That's the reason Jesus, in uh, Matthew 23, tells the first century Jewish leaders who crucified him a day later, you will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That great Messianic Psalm 118. And uh, indeed, a couple of days earlier, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for that final week, there was a spattering of remnant believing Jews who cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the national leaders cried, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus said, okay. Earlier in the week, he had said, I'm going to take this kingdom from you and give it to a future nation of Israel that's worthy of it, because you are not going to see me until you first cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 10. He says, how can they, Israel, is the context there. Remember, he starts out chapter 10 with, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for who? Anybody know the verse? Israel, Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer before God is for Israel to be saved, to be delivered. And so what he says is, They cannot call on him in whom they have not first believed. How can they call on him in whom they have not first believed. So individual faith comes first, and then when the Jews have believed the gospel, then they will cry out in unison as a nation, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the name of the Lord. And that all is going to happen at the same time in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. So that's why you have that seven-year period. Remember, we just uh, looked at that uh, book of Revelation chart. You have that whole seven-year period period where the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are going out and proclaiming the gospel. And, and yes, there is a, 
multitude of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that believes the gospel and gets saved during the tribulation. But primarily, it's the nation of Israel that is the target. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Some Jews will take the mark of the beast, but many will believe. And by the end of the tribulation, when Christ comes back, the nation of Israel as a nation will cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they'll be uh, delivered. That has not happened yet. So while we look to modern-day Israel as our ally, they're a democratic nation, we are friends with them, we support them, they are not in the land in belief today. They are not fulfilling prophecy today. They are just in waiting. Uh, those that are believers are waiting for the king to come back, but most of them are not. Political leaders in Israel are not believers. I mean, there may be some. I'm sure there are. But as a, as a general rule, they're not. The same way we would say the people in Washington, D.C. are not believers. There are some, of course, right? But uh, they don't last very long, and they don't get very much progress made uh, because it's all controlled by the Luciferians. So all this to say that Israel is not always good. We've seen that biblically. We've seen that historically. We see that today. In fact, one of the leading voices of the Luciferian conspiracy to this day, today, one of the guys that is the most vocal, unreserved, unashamed in his blasphemous remarks about the coming new world order is who? Yuval Noah Harari, who is what? A Jew. So this should not surprise us. He said, God is dead. It's just taking a while to bury the body. I've, I've given you these quotes before. This Jewish unbeliever says, I think, uh, I think that maybe the most important thing for people to realize about living in the 21st century is that we are now hackable animals. That's, what they, that's how they look at you and me. Uh, we don't have to wait until Christ's second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a laboratory can do it if you give them enough time and enough money. Now, is that something that should make should represent positively God's chosen nation and the apple of his eye? God doesn't think of Yuval Noah Harari as the apple of his eye. Now, if, if Harari would uh, change his mind and, and place his faith in Christ, there's nobody that's beyond redemption. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But to somehow blindly assume that all Jews are good, and we should blindly support Israel, as some uh, you know, prophetic Zionists suggest, uh, is simply wrong. Uh, and that's why I've gotten in trouble before, by pointing that out. People think that somehow I'm being anti-Semitic. I'm not anti-Semitic. Nobody loves Israel. You know, I love Israel as much as the next guy. I think the, God loves Israel, and they're God's chosen nation, and someday we're going to worship alongside Israel. In fact, we're going to rule and reign with Israel someday in the kingdom. But that doesn't mean uh, that we shouldn't point out when they're wrong and when they bomb an innocent children's home in the West Bank and kill innocent people, we ought to hold them accountable. The same way that we hold the Arabs accountable when they bomb innocent people on Israel's side of the board. But we've got, you know, it's very similar, the, the the disconnect, the, 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 the blindness, this exceptionalist mindset uh, in America is very similar to what we see in Israel. I mean, they're, they're parallel. 
Some people just can't let themselves believe that American leaders would be so evil as to just indiscriminately kill, you know, uh, 3,000 people on a bright sunny morning in September or do, you know, all kinds of experiments with the, uh, you know, gene-altering bioinjections that they mandate or the dozens upon dozens of other experiments that they've done that I describe in uh, Spirit of the Antichrist chapter 2. Uh, we just can't let our minds go there. We just think, oh, that would never happen here. It would. And in the same way, as much as we love Israel, as much as we understand God's plan for the nation of Israel and, the, and that it's his chosen nation, the king of kings in Israel is not there yet. And the people that are there are not that good of people. And so they are leading some bad things uh, uh, as well. Um, other modern-day examples, obviously Yuvaldo Harari comes to everyone's mind, but what about this guy, Henry Kissinger? He's Jewish, and he said, quote, The New World Order cannot happen without U.S. participation, as we are the single most significant component. Yet there, Yes, there will be a New World Order, and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. He's the same one who said, Today, America would be outraged if U.N. troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow, they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told that there were an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, that threaten our very existence. The Hegelian dialectic. We want the U.S. to get to, to jump on board the, the New World Order. Let's just bring them to their knees, threaten them with some terrible you know, nuclear devastation or whatever it is, EMP or economic collapse. There's any number of weapons in the toolkit. And when they bring us to our knees, then people will cry out, save me from the boogeyman. We'll, we will happily jump on board the One World System. That's what they've been planning forever. This goes back to the early 90s when he said this. Um, you know, if people will you know, dutifully line up, and we all remember what it was like, the, the lines of cars at these tents filling mall parking lots, people dutifully lining up, sticking their arm out the window to be injected with some experimental substance they had no idea what was in it. If they'll do that, you know, it's not going to be hard to get America if the Lord doesn't come back or eventually, one way or the other, the question is whether we'll be here when it happens. Uh, it's not going to be hard to get America to jump on board. That's what they're, that's what they're uh, going to do. He, he, he goes on to say, it's then that all peoples of the world will plead to deliver them from this evil. One thing every man fears is the unknown, and when presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by the world government. So, no shortage of Jewish people who were pawns in the Luciferian game. But that does not mean that God has abandoned Israel or that he's not got a future for Israel. He does have a future for Israel. But neither does it mean that the Jews, as bad as some of them are, are you know the tip of the spear of this Luciferian conspiracy. That's just absurd. And frankly, I'm growing more and more impatient with those who suggest that because they're getting louder. And if you're listening to a conspiracy pundit out there who is, you know, promoting fake documents like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or some other you know, hogwash out there about the Jews being the ones that are responsible for all the evil in the world, or Holocaust deniers or people like that, you need to stop listening to them. There is a point at which you go, even if every now and then they say something, you know, interesting or 
worthwhile. It's not worth it. They are way off base. And there's a whole segment of the conspiracy world that does not believe in a rapture, does not believe in a distinction between Israel and the church, practices replacement theology, and therefore, since Israel in their mind is, is not, nothing special, they very easily fall into the trap of blaming Israel for all of these problems of the New World Order. That is false. That's not biblical. But we do see a striking rise in anti-Semitism, which to me is just one more sign of the times that we're getting close. It shows that Israel is in the news. It's prominent. Everybody's thinking about Israel. Here's a History Channel uh, series from 2019. Uh, here's another headline from 2022. The alarming rise of anti-Semitism in the United States. Here's one from CNN earlier this year, March 23rd. Anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. are at the highest level recorded since the 1970s. And then this from just three days ago, four days ago, what's today, the 18th or 17th? 18th, so four, July 14th is when this was. From Forbes magazine, anti-Semitism remains all too rampant on social media. It's everywhere. And so, to me, that's a, a you know another geopolitical sign that you know there's always been talk of saber rattling between you know Iran and Israel, and of course we've talked a lot about the Gog Magog alliance. Uh, that's all a part of it, and Israel is an ally. We ought to defend them. You know, we ought to defend them against Iran if Iran attacks them, that kind of thing. But not because they are you know perfect or, or somehow you know, living in the prophetic reality that will be the case in the future. That has not come. Does that make sense? All right, so we'll stop there and uh, open up the floor for questions um, and uh, finish out tonight with some Q&A about any of this stuff or, uh, you know, anything else you might have on your mind prophetically or, you know, any questions. Um, you mind doing the? Thank you, sir. All right, who's got the first question uh, tonight? Back at the back. Um, so who would you say the synagogue of Satan is in this context? Who would I say the synagogue of Satan is? Oh, in, in the book of Revelation? Yeah, I was asked that once before, and I completely fumbled. Um, I mean, I don't know if we can, I don't think in the context there it's intended to be something prophetic for today. I think it was just, you know, a group of false you know, Satanists in that day. So they don't, that's not, that's not a technical term, in other, words, in other words, that refers to some role player in the end times. The, the technical term is Luciferian. That's their term for themselves from Isaiah 14. And, uh, you know, th that's, what I've diagrammed out in the first few chapters of my books. Somebody else? Yes. Speak right into the mic so that the folks online can hear you too. Is the coming of the third temple real or imagined? And are the Jews in Israel looking at that as a prophetic sign? Great question. So the, the, uh, the third temple is absolutely real, and I think they... You know, Orthodox Jews understand prophecy better than the average believer does today, and so they absolutely are excited about that. Uh, Mondo and I did a podcast about that not long ago, 
I would encourage you to go back and check that out. He's been to Israel many times. He's kind of an expert on that uh, area. But, you know, they they really do believe that the stage is being set. You know, the red heifers, the uh, reinstituting the sacrificial system, trying to find a way to build that temple, uh, the whole temple building project. Um, but again, none of that has to happen before the rapture, right? All the rapture could happen at any moment. The rapture could happen tonight, and then the, the temple that the Antichrist defiles could be rebuilt hastily prior to the start of the tribulation and even in the early days of the tribulation. Technically, we only have to have a functioning temple by the midpoint of the tribulation, because that's when the abomination of desol desolation happens, when the Antichrist sacrifices in the temple and sets himself up as God. So all of it, again, kind of falls in the same line as the reestablishment of Israel after World War II as a, in the land. It's a setting of the stage that should get our attention. And that's the way I approached it in my interview with Mondo, is that, yeah, yeah I mean, this is, we're not setting a date here, but we're saying there are a lot of things that indicate we're getting ready for end times events like never before. So what was there a second part to that question? I can't remember. taking a second look at Christian prophecy and testament. Yeah, I don't think there's been much of a revival in Israel. Um, I think they're looking at it just through the, the you know the eyes of orthodoxy. You know, they they've spent centuries, you know, without a homeland and without a temple. They've been there before. <laughs> and uh, you know, Herod spent years building the temple and then it was completed uh uh, he's the one who completed it uh, in his day. And then it was destroyed in 70 AD, and they haven't had one since. So they're just excited about building a temple the same way the people were in Nehemiah's day, for example. Somebody else? Yes. And by the way, that's not to say you can go ahead. Uh, oh, over here first. By the way, before your question, I just want to point out that's not to say that there's not spiritual revival going on among Jews. There are a lot of Jews getting saved. There are a lot of great Jewish Messianic ministries like Friends of Israel and uh, many, many others. And so people, Jews are coming to faith, but I don't see that connected to the temple. I saw a clip today um, by a British comedian, Ricky Gervais. He's spoken sarcastic. And one of the things that his monologue that he talked about was if he had a chance to have a conversation with God one of the first things he would ask him and he's an agnostic but he said if I had a chance to talk to him I would say why don't you just cut through all this and go ahead right now and kill Satan yeah and then he paused and said he would probably say because oh shut up he didn't <laughs> want to discuss it you have a response to that. Yeah, so that really is the age-old question. We could ask the same exact question every step of the way. You know, why didn't God just kill the serpent after he tempted Adam and Eve? Why did he even create Adam and Eve if he knew they were going to reject him and sin? You know, why did he, you know, why, why, why? Why did he send his son if he knew they were going to reject him, right? So we don't have the mind of God, but it all goes back to, this tension between sovereignty and free will. God did not create a race of automatons that have no free will. Otherwise, 
we would not have been made in his image. The very thing that makes us unique and the highest pinnacle of creation, image bearers for God, is our free volitional will. And so God in his sovereignty somehow is allowing that to play out. All of us cry out for justice and all of us say, why, why, why? But that's what makes the tribulation period that you see on the screen there so vital, is it's the great equalizer. It's what answers all those objections. It's when vengeance is served and the wrath of God is poured out. And, you know, go back and read chapters 4 and 5. It's a beautiful theodicy there describing this the worthiness of God. Don't let anybody ever say, God, you're not fair. I mean, God is, God is with, with a holding his wrath right now. And, um, and you know, it's, it's only by the grace of God that he doesn't just wipe us all off the face of the earth. So the earth as it is today is not the earth that God created. And all of the evil in this world is not God's fault. It's man's fault. So I don't know. I, I obviously, you know, Ricky's got, you know, got a point. It's the same question we all ask, believers and unbelievers alike. Why is there evil in the world? Why is God allowing it to go on so long unchecked? But what we do know, if you know the Bible, is that it won't always go be that way. There is an end. There is an end when Christ will come back and make all things new. There will be no more sin, sorrow, darkness, death, none of that. And we, in the meantime, we walk by faith and we wait for that. So that's, that's, that's the only answer that any biblical theologian can give you. And if they try to explain it in a satisfactory manner, they're twisting, twisting it. The word, you know, Romans 11 says that, you know, we, his judgments are past our finding out. So now that may sound like a cop-out, but it, that's, that's what God's word says. Yes. I'm not sure this question has a concrete answer to it. Well, neither did the last one, so. <laughs> but um, taking this into a different direction with all the tensions that are going on in Israel between them and all the different Arab countries terror attacks going on in regards to Ezekiel 38. Um, I read something last week, and it's founded on two or three different sites to make sure that if it's a rumor, it's a well-spread rumor, so I'm not sure. But it was talking about how America seems to be kind of sneaking in a little bit and talked about sending some troops to the... Um, Arabs, something corridor. Well, um, we're we're definitely have troops over there in Ukraine and some of those places. So how does? But if we're in the Middle East and we're sending some to the Middle East now, how does that relate? Because the Ezekiel thirty wars, but they're supposed to not have any allies, correct? Right, right. So are we just you know pretending and doing what we've been doing for a few years now, or? Well, so. America's support for Israel has ebbed and flowed depending on who's in the White House, right? Um, the reason that we should support Israel and the reason that we should defend them against her enemies is that Israel's enemies are her enemies for no other reason that, than that they're Jewish. That's it. They hate Jews because they're God's people. So they don't have any justification for all of the attacks that you know, are coming against Israel. And so, in principle, we should support them. doesn't mean we agree with everything the Jews are doing. I mean, they were literally tip of the spear on the pandemic. I mean, they had like a 99.9% .9 compliance rate on vaccines and masks. I mean, it was like 
practically putting a gun to your head over there to do it. We don't like that. That's bad. But nevertheless, it, nobody should be hated simply because of their ethnicity. And so, least of all, God's chosen nation. So we, sh we should support them. So, yeah, American support for Israel has ebbed and flowed. As far as the Battle of Gog and Magog, um, they will have, I believe, an ally after the war gets started, and that's, you know, the Daniel 11 alliance from the West. I don't think that's America. Uh, but I, you, what is the Daniel So just you read Daniel 11. There's another alliance that I believe is headed by the future Antichrist that comes up and is coming to aid Israel. But, of course, before they get there, God supernaturally defends Israel from the Gog-Magog alliance, and this Western alliance takes credit for it. So see, look, we... We rescued Israel from this big enemy from the north, you know, Russia, and their allies. And uh, that, I think, is what propels the future Antichrist to world fame as a peacemaker, and he then signs the treaty. That, that's just my understanding. I describe that in my What Lies Ahead book. Uh, it's somewhat speculative because we don't know for sure, but it makes a lot of sense in, in my mind. But, um, you know, Israel by the time Gog Magog happens, is going to be a sitting duck. And were God not to in intervene, like the book of Ezekiel says he's going to, they would be wiped out. But that's been true how many times throughout Israel's history? So just because there's an ally that may show up doesn't necessarily mean they're not still alone because of how big everything sure. is that's coming out. And just them. because there's not an ally does not mean they're going to be destroyed. Right. Exactly. Uh, I'm rereading my Bible and in the Old Testament, and uh, I just was curious. Um, it talks an awful lot in there um, about the Jews. If you know, if they don't comply with the Torah and stuff, that you'll be cut off from among your people. And I, I was reading that, and I was thinking, well, does what does that mean? Does that mean they're not a Jew? They're not looked at as a Jew anymore? It's just hope is all lost for them? I mean, yeah. what are your thoughts? So. In, when reading the Old Testament, you have to distinguish between the conditional covenants and the unconditional covenants. The unconditional covenant is going to happen. They're going to get their kingdom no matter what, as we read earlier, even in spite of their disobedience, right? But the blessings and cursings that the law talks about in Deuteronomy, they relate to obedience versus disobedience. And so the timing of when the unconditional covenant will come about is contingent on obedience, but not the fact of it. It's going to happen one way or the other, but it will only happen, as I said, when Israel comes to faith and then cries out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they receive their Messiah. Um, but yeah, God has disciplined Israel time and again, and he made it very clear that you know when you follow my word and my commandments, you'll be blessed, and they were. And when you don't, you won't be blessed. Uh, and they weren't. They were disciplined. And so that, that's, you know, those are two completely separate factors. The overarching pro prophecy is, as we read, as long as there's a sun in the sky and a moon in the sky, God's pr promises for Israel will ultimately come true. But along the way, he's not going to look the other way when they align themselves with pagan nations, worship false gods, commit idolatry, those kinds of things. And indeed, he, he did. They were cut off many times and carried off into exile. Good question. I think on the back row we had a question.
I wondered if I could follow up on the question just prior to hers. Um, in Daniel 11, can you tell me if um, that's referring to, if part of that chapter is referring to Antiochus fourth Epiphanes, and part of it is that the later part is the Antichrist? Yes. Um, part of chapter 11 is uh, fulfilled in history all the way up to verse 35. So verses, uh, well, really the whole first part of the chapter up to verse 35. But then it shifts to the tribulation period, starting with the word then in verse 36. Then the king, because uh, verse 35 ends with, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will, verse 36. And that's talking about the Antichrist. Uh, and it you know, goes all the way through the beginning of chapter 12, verse 3. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original text. So 11.36 to 12.3 is tribulation and Antichrist. Is there anything to tie in with her question about the potential allies of Israel? Is there anything you could add to that? Yeah, I think verse 40, um, I don't have my uh, uh, references in front of me, but if someone, uh, if you look in my uh what Lies Ahead book at the back, there's an appendix called Sequential Order of End Times Events, and I give the references in parentheses there. But I think it's starting in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Um, I think that's referring to uh, that alliance that I was that I was talking about. Great. Thanks. Okay. Somebody else. Yes, up, up here. We're going to get, get your exercise front row this time. Changed up my question, so I was thinking. <laughs> As it relates to uh, the pre-trip rapture of all of our position, Nathan, there's this fever pitch right now online with regard to, they're, they're saying they're not naming dates, but boy, do they like flirting with good, good possibilities talking about there's this new wine thing. I don't even know what, it, what they're talking about. I've not listened to it. Um, then they talk about the uh, Feast of Trumpets being a, a time when it could happen. I'm just wondering if you align with any of the kinds of thinking this way, even though it's not necessarily naming a date. Um, yeah, no, usually I don't, uh, especially the Feast of Trumpets thing. I think that's just a cardinal mistake of blurring the distinction between Israel and the church. The church has nothing to do with Israel's calendar. Never has. Now, some people will say, oh, well, it was founded on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, that was, that was true, but that was, it wasn't founded because it was Pentecost, right? It was, the church was a mystery. It did not fall on any, you know, prescribed date. And if we know anything from reading the epistles... The church is not beholden to the, the festivals, the feasts, the laws. The, church, the law was a steward put in place until Christ came, and now we're not under the law, period. So to try to force-fit the rapture into the Jewish feasts and festivals, I just think that's a mistake. I, I, don't, I just don't see it. Uh, the church began suddenly, and it will end suddenly on the rapture at a time known only to the Lord. And if, the, if we could 
figure out the general time frame of the rapture based on Israel's feast, which again, that's blurring that distinction when there's no connection. But if we could, let's say for the sake of argument, then the rapture would not be imminent. For example, we would know the rapture cannot happen from January to August any year. So we got basically eight months of eat, drink, and be merry because he ain't coming today, which flies in the complete face of what, for example, John said in 1 John 2, 28, little children abide in him so that when he appears, you'll be confident and not ashamed. Well, if we know he's not coming in the first eight months of the year, why not, right? But the, the repeated calls to eagerly expecting and eagerly awaiting and looking for and watching for and this blessed hope indicate you know, that the rapture is imminent, which means it could happen at any moment, not just in a particular season. Uh, so I just don't buy it. Um, but you're right. You know, there, there, there is, uh, Jim, a whole host of people all over the map prophetically. And while we agree with their enthusiasm for studying Bible prophecy and we agree with uh, their excitement that it seems like we're living in the last days here, the last of the last days, we, we would disagree with a lot of their you know, hermeneutics, like the whole blood moons thing, the whole uh, Shemitah thing. The, I mean, all of that, I respect those guys. I, I love them, and I think they're brothers in the Lord, and I've learned a lot from them, but I just have an honest disagreement about trying to correlate those distinctly Jewish... Well, blood moons is just has nothing to do with that. That's a, that's a cosmic sign that Joel talks about and Peter talks about and the book of Revelation talks about that will accompany the second coming. It has nothing to do with the, the red moons that we see in the cycle. But, um, but the other stuff, I don't think it has anything to do with God's timetable for the rapture. I just don't see it. Um, so, you know, we... we love to talk about it. It's speculative. Um, I think, uh, I don't know if it was you or someone else last week that asked about the 7,000-year model. Um, so to me, I, I would give the same answer to, you know, to the, this question as I did that one. It's intriguing. It's interesting. I mean, could the rapture happen in September? Yeah, could. Uh, but I don't think that has anything to do with the Feast of Trumpets, personally. But I know a lot of people do, and I respect them. Yeah, either way, I just want to get at her. I'd rather it happen in July, you know. It'd be okay with me. But, you know, we, we, have to be, uh, we have to be gracious. We have to be have conversations. But, you know, I am a pretty consistent, not, you know, not that I'm perfect by any means, but I was privileged to, to learn and grow and study under some of the top traditional dispensational scholars of our day. And I learned the importance of a consistent literal grammatical historical hermeneutic and so i try not to deviate into that realm of you know allegorical meaning anybody else we got time for one more all right two more over here i can't turn either of these nice ladies away especially since you came from so far away right it surprised you yeah so did I understand? I guess I want to see interpretation. Um, the biblical fulfillment of prophecy of Israel returning to the land. And <clears throat> did I understand that you're saying the May 1948 return is not the one that's referred to, but there will be another return or just return to belief? 
No, I don't take that the May 1948 return was fulfillment of prophecy. I don't. Now, I know some people do. They look at an obscure passage. It escapes me at the moment. I've talked about it before, uh, but since I don't hold that view, I, I don't keep it in the forefront of my mind that they say implies two returns. Or even more often than not, they'll, they'll look at Ezekiel 37, the dry bones prophecy, and say, oh, this is the beginning of them coming back to life. No, no, I don't see that. Remember, God's prophetic end times plan, we have you know, a list of prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. The number one item on that list is the rapture. If you put anything before that, the rapture is not imminent. Because if, if 1948 was the fulfillment of a prophecy, and it had then and in God's uh, calendar it had to happen first because the rapture hasn't happened yet as far as I know if it did we were all left behind uh, then then that means that the rapture's at a minimum number two and the implications of that are the rapture could not have happened in 1947 or 1946 or 1945 or any time in the last 1947 years of church history right so not there's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture so it's a, it's a subtle distinction, but an important one. And the distinction is between stage setting and fulfillment. So 1948 was clearly stage setting, as everything I talk about in my books is, and everything we see happening around us. It's like, like the, the uh, digital ID, right? That's not the fulfillment of the mark of the beast, but it certainly fits the bill and could be what, the beast uses for that in the book of, in the tribulation period. So I don't see that return itself as a fulfillment, but I see it as prophetically significant. Now, if you really want to think I'm a heretic, then consider this, to, you know, uh, and I'm not alone in this thinking. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought the person was a heretic too, but then I can't, as I studied it, I began to realize, you know, that's right. Hypothetically, Israel could disappear from the maps again tomorrow. And it would not shake my theology one bit. Because Israel does not have to be in the land before the rapture. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that this is all part of the build-up and the setting of the stage and the props are being put in place. And the next thing that's going to happen is the rapture is going to happen. So I'm not saying that I believe that. I'm just saying hypothetically. Because... Israel did not have to have a homeland prior to the rapture. It just so happens they now do. Does that make sense? So I mean, at some point there will be a re-regathering. The believers, the non-believed land will be transferred to the believers. No, so... There won't be a re-regathering. Let me look at a passage here. Matthew 24, verse 31. And this is the fulfillment of a host of Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13. Every major and minor prophet talks about this regathering. Jesus says, we'll start out in verse uh, 29. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation, so when is the second coming? After the tribulation. The, uh, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. These cosmic signs that the book of Revelation describes. 
Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of heaven, from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That moment is the fulfillment of all those passages that talk about Israel being regathered into the land. Whoever, Joel said to the nation of Israel, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. Paul reiterated it. Psalmist in Psalm 118 describes it. This is the day the Lord has made. We will be rejoiced and be glad in it. It's the second coming. So that's when the, the one and only, in my view, regathering happens. So it's not a re-regathering. What happened in 1948 was simply prophetically significant because now there is officially recognized a nation like Israel, called Israel, on the map. You've got to imagine, it's hard for us to imagine it. Uh, I mean, some of you were uh, alive, were born prior to 1948, but for most, the vast majority of us, we've always had Israel. But think about, you know, 1900, well, from 70 A.D., basically, to 1947, Israel was just some ancient biblical city that the liberals and, you know, uh, skeptics and atheists thought was just some made-up mythical city, you know, like they used to think about other cities, like Nineveh or some of these other ancient cities that have been found, right? But it was just an ancient biblical city. You only, you'd only know it if you had a, a good study Bible with maps at the back, right? Oh, Israel, I wonder what that was, right? Well, now it's on the news every day. It's actually in our maps. It's in our atlases. It's on our GPSs. You can Google how far is it from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, and Google will tell you, right? So I think it's clearly biblically significant uh, and setting the stage, but hypothetically, you know, that could have all happened after the rapture. Remember, there's this unspecified, as you see on the screen, this unspecified length of time after the rapture prior to the official start of the 70th week of Daniel. We don't know how long that's going to be. So if Israel were not a nation today, I would believe just as strongly in the imminency of the rapture as I do even though Israel is a nation today. So that's what I'm saying. It's not a re-regathering. It's, it's a setting of the stage. Does that help? So. So, you know, the reference of Isaiah 66, 8, shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? I think that relates to what you say about a nation being born at once. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not talking about 1948. That's talking about the second coming. The establishment of the kingdom, 65 and 66 in Isaiah are all about the kingdom, the lion laying with the lamb, all of that stuff. Okay. So it seems to be a street of witness that the perception that there really are two sides and that the people who are not on God's side are really Luciferians, getting them to realize that that barrier, they think they're the good guys, and for us being what we are, telling them that the truth of the scripture, that we're the bad guys, 
key for how we break to get them to realize who they really are. Part of the respect, I think most people would deny that they are whispers, even though what they do is whispers. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends who you're talking to. Yeah, the vast majority of the average liberals, progressives, unbelievers, atheists, skeptics, whatever, they're not wittingly worshiping Satan or considering him their leader, right? They don't consider themselves to be whispers. Right, right. No, no. No, the vast majority don't. But at the top tier, they absolutely do. They're the ones sacrificing children, drinking blood, and getting their order, marching orders from Satan himself. And so when I go over my chart in the in the books and in my lectures, the diagramming the Luciferian conspiracy, I always point out that the top tier, they're the only ones that know for sure. The second level, you have some that know, some that don't. And the third level, for the vast majority, have no idea they're part of a Luciferian conspiracy. They're just pawns in the game. Right? So you're right. I, I think the average person that's uh, not a believer uh, does not understand that they're part of Satan's team, but according to the Bible, they are. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. If you're not a believer, you're a child of Satan. So uh, they don't have to acknowledge that for that to be true. But you're right. The vast majority don't. Don't think of it in those terms. State of Colorado has put itself completely in that side with House Bill 19-1032, which says that in public schools, Oh, yeah. That's what I've said about public uh, schools, too. I mean, with all respect to Christian teachers and people out there trying to make a difference, the fact of the matter is compulsory government schooling in America is, by definition, satanic. They, their own admission is they're pagan. You cannot preach the gospel, read the Bible, proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection in the school. That's pagan. There's only two options. <laughs> so, all right, last question back here. This has nothing to do with prophecy, but I know you take those other questions too. Um, a friend of mine asked me a question that I thought I had the answer to, but the more we discussed it, I didn't. So I was going to email you, but as long as I'm here, I'm going to capture you live. All right. So, <laughs> um, what's the difference between, or is there a difference between paradise and heaven? Yeah. Is that two different places? I, I don't think so, but I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. But I've just never made a big deal about the difference between Abraham's bosom, Hades, Sheol, paradise, heaven, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. To me, there's it's clear from Scripture that all believers at the moment of death go to be in the presence of the Lord. And all unbelievers go to be in the presence of torment. Okay? Now, I understand when it comes to the unbelievers that the ultimate dwelling place of the unredeemed is the lake of fire, just prepared for the devil and his angels, but we're, it's not, that's not where everybody is yet. They all get cast into that at the end. 
And I understand that the ultimate dwelling place of the redeemed, believers, is the new heavens and the new earth. And I talk about this in my first ever book I wrote called Getting the Gospel Wrong. I have an extended footnote where I explain that essentially when we say things like, would you like to go to heaven when you die? Or are you going to go to heaven when you die? Or are you sure if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? We're using heaven as essentially a metonym for the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed. But, you know, what ultimately that's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the Bible says in Revelation 21 and 22. So, I, you know, I just, I think a lot of that comes from, and I addressed this last week uh, on, actually, to yesterday on uh, my first episode of uh, Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions, which is a new series we're doing. Someone asked the question about uh, what did Christ do during the three days he was in the grave? And there's some misunderstanding, I believe, about that, that somehow he went down into the dark, place and a bunch of believers were kind of trapped in this pseudo temporary place and they let them free so they could go to heaven i just think that's a complete misunderstanding of those two passages in peter and ephesians and uh so you can check that out so i think a lot of that plays into this different locations but if someone had asked me that i would say no there's not a difference and again with respect to those who disagree they've been whole books and charts written about Here's paradise, here's Abraham's bosom, here's this, and some go here and some go here, and eventually we all get to, you know, I just, I think that's speculative at best, and I just, I think it's best not to, to go there. I mean, it's best to go to heaven, but that was a, that was a poor, poor choice of words. Uh, but thank you guys for coming tonight, and I want to close out by just reiterating, and I'm sure this crowd, it's, it's not necessary, but Maybe you know someone. Let's be clear about sharing the gospel with those in these urgent times. If they don't know the Lord, there's only one way to be saved. That's through faith alone in Christ alone, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. It's not believing that he died or that he rose again even that saves you. It's when you recognize that you are a sinner, which means you've got a problem, because your sin consigns you to a literal place of torment called hell. And once you recognize that, then you can receive the the solution or the salvation from that, the rescue from that. You don't know you're drowning, you're not going to reach for the life preserver. Once you acknowledge your sinfulness, then you can reach out to Christ who died for you personally, took your penalty on the cross, rose again, and offers to you freely the gift of eternal life if you'll just trust in Him for it. So that's the gospel in a nutshell. And today's the day of salvation. If you've not placed your faith in Christ, make sure you do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time together tonight, and we just ask you to uh, help us to be gracious as we deal with these questions and interact with others, uh, recognizing we don't have all of the answers. But Lord, we know this much. You're coming again, and uh, we say Maranatha. Maybe it'll be today. We pray this in Jesus' name.